First of all, you can have a hard fast rule that has some benefits, but in a complex situation or complex environment, a hard fast rule is also going to have negative effects. Welcome to Reproducibility, an open science podcast featuring early career researchers. I'm Sarah, coming to you from Lincoln in the UK. That makes me an immigrant living on the land of those who colonized the land that my family settled on and where I've called home most of my life, which is still called Canada. Hi, everyone. I'm Helena. I'm a postdoc at the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases and was formerly a PhD student in psychology at the University of Cambridge, where I was also involved in the local reproducibility chapter. Awesome. So today we're very excited to introduce some guests. Yes, you heard me. Guests, not one, but two lovely guests. We have Flavio and Paul. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. So I'm an incoming assistant professor in social psychology at the University of Groningen. I just very, very recently started. It's the first time that I actually present myself as an assistant professor. Ooh. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was um, a senior researcher at Cambridge University at Sunder van der Linden Social Decision Making Lab, where I focus on the psychology of anti-scientific attitudes and conspiratorial thinking. Um, I'm also uh, the co-founder of FORT, the Framework uh, for Open Reproducible Research Training, together with Sam Parsons, and I've been directing the organization, which counts with today 750 early career scholars, and we together aim to integrate open uh, scholarship into higher education, and we also have the lofty goal of advancing research transparency, reproducibility mm. rigor, through pedagogical reform in meta-science. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I'm a research methodologist, kind of a gun for hire, I guess, because I mainly do consultancy work with different organisations. One of the main organisations I work with is the Evidence-Based Toxicology Collaboration, which is an international network of researchers trying to improve how uh, research is done in the environmental health sciences. Um, and we work kind of in the space of understanding how the environments in which people live affect their health. I originally specialised in evidence synthesis, um, but have been moving more into kind of open science, shareable data, um, research ecosystem kind of space because of the way that systematic review and evidence mapping methods and things are kind of the wrong way of solving the problem of how to make the best use of research. Like research needs to be machine readable and uh, fair in order for it to be accessible enough to be usable given the volume of it that we're making and the complexity of the questions and things that we're dealing with these days. I'm also editor-in-chief of a new open science journal environmental health called Evidence-Based Toxicology. And uh, Sarah, can I stick a big disclaimer on what I'm going to say? Go for it. So quite all the stuff we're discussing now is, is quite new to me and quite different to what I anticipated the discussion being when I first kind of volunteered to do this. So if mm. it was like a Socratic dialogue, I'd be the idiot in a toga getting schooled by a guy with bad teeth. So um, wonderful anything stupid I say, I'm kind of your example and you're welcome. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, we're really glad to have you both here. Lovely. Thank you so much for your introductions. And uh, as you might know, we do like to start this with uh, something we might call a tasty teed bit or an appetizer. Gotta love those puns. And uh, in this episode, we're talking about books that have influenced us. Uh, Citational politics and open science uh, and e-life and uh, big team science. 
So we're going to be citing a lot of sources in this episode's main course. So we thought we'd start by uh, this little uh, appetizer. So each sharing one book that has influenced the way that we uh, think about the world. All right, Flavio, do you want to start out? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think I talk about a book that has uh, been launched recently uh, by Charlotte Pennington, The Student's Guide to Open Science using the replication crisis to reform psychology. And it's such a good book. Um, it's incredibly well written by an incredibly savvy, knowledgeable and expert person from the field. Um, and I, I just recommend it to everyone who is interested, broadly construed uh, into open scholarship, open science or anything related really to to how we go about science and the the hidden curriculum and how even she retells the story of why she's even writing the book, which is extremely relatable. It's also a very cheap book, a very short book, but extremely dense in terms of information and 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 just amazingness. I, I would recommend it to everyone to read it. Awesome. Fantastic. Can I cheat and have two books? Because... I don't read, I, I'm a terrible person, I don't actually read a huge amount, I learn by talking to people, um, which is terrible. Uh, so I've got two books. One, How to Read a Paper, by Trish Greenough, that I read 2008, I think, so quite a long time ago now, uh, that was I think the first time I came across, because I come from a philosophy background, where I have a master's in philosophy, uh, not a scientist by original training. But it fascinated me that there was actually like rich discussion around research methods and you didn't have to take anything particularly seriously. And in fact, understanding stuff was uh, a science in itself. And then because I work in open science and trying to persuade people to do research differently, improve how research is done, then Chris Rose's book, How to Win Campaigns, is, uh, makes you realise that you're a campaigner and that NGO campaigning strategies are really fundamental to understanding how to bring about change in research environments as well. Huh. Yeah, it's an interesting link. Uh, my book is called Pollution is Colonialism. It's by Max Liboiron. I realize I've talked about Max in every episode we've recorded so far this season, and I will probably continue to because their work is incredibly influential to me. I think they're an awesome researcher. Um, it entirely shifted the way I think about how science works and how we are related to land, how land relations are central to how we want to do good work that doesn't harm land or each other in often ways that are often um, not obvious. So highly recommend. It's also short, but incredibly dense. As when I first picked it up, I was like, oh, 150 pages. That's not bad. I'll get through this in a breeze. It took me weeks to get through it. It's almost every page was like, whoa, my entire world is coming down and being rebuilt. So that's my recommendation. Sounds really interesting. So for me, it's The Art of Statistics, Learning from Data. Mm. It's by David Spiegelhalter, um, obviously super famous uh, person in statistics. And the reason why I enjoyed this book so much is that at that point, I was already a PhD candidate. So I was already quite aware, obviously, of statistics. I was using it every day, really. But 
what I really learned from this is how to basically tell a story with statistics in the right way rather than in you know potential pitfalls that one might make and how easy it is to mislead individuals with statistics especially uh, the wider public so I really enjoyed um, thinking about statistics in quite a different way and also directly relating it to how that might influence trust in science um, the wider public so this book is certainly also for people who might not necessarily be statistics nerds um, although like a total nerd I did have this as a beat read <laughs> which might not be for everyone amazing that was so important though all right so you all have a bunch of reading to do now <laughs> okay moving on trying to be a little bit a little bit punny a little bit fun whether or not sandwiches are your favorite part of afternoon tea they do take up the bulk of the plate can we distribute all the parts of afternoon tea more equitably so that every course gets equal presentation? Do we want that? Mm -hmm. For this week's main course, we're discussing citational politics in open science. Before we get into it, let's first define citational politics. So very shortly, it means deliberately thinking about who we cite and why. And to give it more context about why that might matter, if we take citations as a kind of currency in academia, it's also called um, a technology by some people. More citations tends to equal more recognition, grants, awards, promotion. Then we can say that it's also a proxy for power. And so paying attention to who you cite can also be a way to distribute power more equitably, i.e. away from a majority of white men. It's something that I try to practice in all of my work, but I hadn't really thought about it in relation to open science until I heard someone... I can't remember exactly where. I'm pretty sure it was on a peer review episode of Secret Feminist Agenda. And they mentioned that they either don't submit to or review for papers that aren't open access at all. So that got me thinking about the relationship between citation politics and practices and then in open science. And so I was thinking, is that something that we could do more specifically in open science? And it got me wanting to talk about it with other people. So I guess we'll start with, do you all have a citational politic? And if so, then what might it be? Shall I go first? Uh, sure. That was being quite, I'm probably a reasonable anchor point because I'm so naive on this stuff. So when Sarah, you originally approached me about this, um, I think uh, I was thinking about systematic review. And like one of the things we try to do in systematic review is not care who wrote what. We just want to um, include evidence because it's relevant to the either the topic domain we're trying to map or the specific research question we're trying to answer. Obviously, when you do a systematic review, you have like a problem setting, problem formulation stage. There's a context section where you're trying to explain why the systematic review you are doing is important and should be done. Uh, so there are kind of um, obviously parts of that process that would employ conventional citation practices. Uh, and then I was thinking, oh, well, um, what was I thinking? That was it. I'll stop there. Sorry. All right. So I think I, I'm by no means I am an expert on this. So similar to Paul, I'm learning as, as we go. But I want to make the point that um, I'm not sure as a political scientist, I'm not sure it's the politics of citation. I tend to see 
the the word politics as as highly charged and you know nobody wants to be political it's kind of what the others have i have principled uh thinking and you know ethics other people have their politics um i would also say that a better term to me would be justice the justice of citations for example because justice is about fixing the systems right systems of oppression um that uh, you know, that generate inequalities and inequities. So to me, it's, 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 I would, I would phrase it or you would use the word justice in this regard, right? So similar mm-hmm. to the debate of equality and equity, sort of, you know, um, giving, uh, um, you know, giving everybody the same sort of help versus helping each other based on our needs. So essentially, that's the, you know, that, that's a tangent. In any case, so to me, it's about justice and who do you want to um, be in the conversation about ideas, scientific ideas, right? So there is this quote by um, uh, Sarah Ahmed on uh, living a feminist life that she, she writes, citation is how we acknowledge our adapt to those who came before, those who helped us find our way when our way was obscured because we deviated from paths we were told to follow. So I think mm-hmm. citation politics is is very much embedded on what Sarah said about yeah. power and who gets to participate in this conversation on what the future of the scholarship looks like. And um, I'll leave it there at the moment and leave to Elena, who is uh, next... It's very knowledgeable on the area, uh, and I'm very grateful to learn from her knowledge. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I don't know if I'm uh, super knowledgeable. I've uh, gotten into this a little bit more recently, um, and I think this got me started. Well, actually, there were two reasons that that um, kind of pushed me over the edge of being like, wow, okay, um, this is becoming more and more of an issue. Uh, The first one was... Uh, publication uh, in Nature, I believe, that was about the gender gap in citations. Um, Obviously, it it has been shown in some of those fields, such as physics, uh, where where there's quite a bit of a gender gap. And so some people have just argued, well, physics is a male-dominated discipline anyway, so, you know, it's kind of to be expected. But then there was also some evidence that uh, actually this happens in the social sciences as well, and nobody can say that that's not a field where we have quite a bit of female representation. So that was um, one really influential kind of uh, line of research on citation uh, politics then, kind of thinking about, well, where does that come from? Why is that the case? And what can we do about it? And then another thing that kind of got me a little bit annoyed was when I was uh, prepping an article for a journal where they only allowed me to cite 50 uh, references. And going through that, I was quite desperate thinking about who I would have to leave out, which is obviously mm-hmm. incredibly unfair because basically all of these citations were obviously relevant and these authors deserve to be um having their work put out there and that not being the case in the end the question is what is your politics about deciding who still Mm -hmm. gets a 
basically a voice. And thinking about how much power in that moment I had to decide that made me really uncomfortable. And that's one of the big reasons why this became um, quite an important issue to me. So that's what influences me when when now I think about whom I'm citing. You know, if I want to look up a certain uh, piece of evidence about a certain question, I go on Google and, you know, maybe go beyond uh, like Google Scholar or other, maybe go beyond just the first page of results, um, kind of stopping and halting if there is a name that I don't quite know yet, but who does very relevant research thinking about why haven't I heard of them before? Is that for a good reason or is it just because they're coming from a university that might not be, um, you know, one of the ones that everybody knows about? Um but there's still much I have to learn and uh, much that I have to develop in terms of becoming better at that. I think to me, it's, it's a practice. Right? It's, it's not a necessarily something that is hard and fast. It's not something you can change immediately. I think, I mean, it, it depends on what your approach is. The, I know living a feminist life, Sarah Ahmed has a politic where she does not cite white men. And she explicitly states that and just you know, explains why. It's not something that I am I'm interested in doing. I don't think that makes sense for me in my position. <laughs> um, but I can try to spread out, diversify who, who I cite and deliberately cite those who have less power structurally, both in the institution and side of it. I think that's precisely it. It's to use our citations in such a way that it doesn't reinforce existing power structures, but instead aims at building community. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's tricky because that's not... I mean, I didn't even think about this until a couple of years ago. I came across this and I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, like, it, it never occurred to me because it's not something that's really taught, as you know, systematically in any kind of program. It's just, well, if you cite who's relevant, but how, how do you decide those things? And who you're going to find first when you Google something, Google is demonstrably racist and sexist. And so it will, by default, show up more, not always, but more white men than anybody else. So it's how do you go about finding those other works and also shifting towards recognizing community reports potentially as a valid citation Twitter, podcasts, right? like other sources that aren't just peer-reviewed academic because that has barriers in itself. Speaking of building communities, there are some communities, for example, like Marginalia or Ford and Abreer that are putting together databases of scholars. Uh, for example, Ford does for neurodiverse scholars. Marginalia mm. does for uh, marginalized uh, members uh, in academia and Abreer does for low and middle income countries. So those are databases of scholars from, uh, uh from these demographics that, um, um, you can search their databases to find citation, uh, to find papers that you would cite. So this has been helpful, um, oh. at least as a, as a tool for those seeking to, uh, leverage their power in citation practices. Um, but another thing that I want to raise, there's also structural problems, right? Because early career scholars, they have um, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of to do's, a, a lot of norms to to um, internalize it, etc. So this is yet another one 
for it's always you know the betterment of academia is always uh, uh you know uh, early career scholars bear the brunt of you know improving academia um so mm-hmm. um i would say that uh, uh you know do as you can but be aware that there are power structures that will go against your best intentions and, and work and efforts. So, for example, uh, a lot of journals, too, do not accept preprints, much of which you would find from uh, from low- and middle-income countries because, um, um, you know, um, open access is something that is completely related to funding opportunities um, mm-hmm. and majoritarily from the global north. Um, and um, I, for example, have been encouraged not to cite um, works from Latin America by editors, uh, or even, even works that were in not English. So, um, I cited mm. some French works and some German works and, and, oh, well, those are not in English. Nobody can read it. Um, but I That's cited them. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so, so power structures will yield their power in maintaining the status quo. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between what you can do individually and what happens structurally. And so what is what you can do individually is think about it and do what you can, you know, to 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 have that kind of influence. Um but yeah, like Bobby was saying, there's there's a, there's a limit to what you can do. So we also need some structural changes. Uh, how do we do that though? <laughs> <laughs> well, so structural, sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um yeah, one thing I think is important to highlight generally, as you're saying, is that um, even though we, of course, bear responsibility as individuals, and as you're saying, structural aspects are important as well, I feel like um, one one aspect of focusing quite a bit on individual um, responsibility is that especially, you know, I, I feel like grad students, for example, um, especially currently in my field, so uh, initially coming from psychology, you're you're being kind of bombarded with a lot of the things that are wrong with science, right? And so many things that you as a researcher have to consider to be more ethical and sometimes to push the boundaries as well against those kinds of structures. So I feel like one uh, one structure in which one can do that that might be a little bit less high threshold um, so to speak, is to to start there, um, really to try and engage with uh, the the earliest of career researchers, so in in grad school. And oftentimes, I feel like at that level, people have a bit more passion for actually changing the way that things are done because you know um, you're not stuck in a rut yet. You you don't have all of your ways of looking for citations set up. And so uh, I think there's quite a bit of potential. I mean, that's how reproducibility came about as well. So um, looking at that, I'm, I'm hopeful at least. Yeah, fair. Yes, I think from my perspective, I, I don't, I'm much more interested in structural change than individual practice because I don't think individual practice can even, like you have no power without a structure built around making your influence go beyond just yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So the reason that we set up the journal and the reason that the Evans Space Collab- Toxicology Collaboration I work for exists is to try to uh, understand what these new structures should look like and then kind of bring them in, right? So I think, so it was interesting, uh, Helena, when you were talking about how being limited to 50 citations by a journal kind of precipitated uh, 
was involved in precipitating your interest in citation politics, uh, it's a stupid policy, right? And journals shouldn't have a 50 citation limit. And then if, you, if the French literature is relevant, it should be included, right? So that's another stupid policy. So there's a bunch of... And I think then that's where individuals do start to matter because when it is an editor, you have the power to decide... Uh, in, in, you know, in collaboration with your journal manager and editorial board, so it's not it's not just one person we're looking at here, but there, you have a lot more influence. You have the opportunity to not do dumb stuff, and and that's I think at, what, at one level which is more structural. So a journal is a bigger structure than a publishing house is a bigger structure still, uh, and then if you can set up research collaborations and support networks like. Fort, which I guess is kind of more grassrootsy and kind of organising, but then if you can engage other structures within those kind of collaborations, then you start being able to roll out serious change. So I think these admonishing people to be like not be dicks basically is um, important because we have to be very conscious of all of this stuff. But it's also you know it risks becoming overwhelming, like uh, just just you know, finding the time to read about this stuff for a couple of hours before this podcast was, was, was tough for me in addition to the editing work that I've got to do, the policies we're trying to develop at the journal, which we're trying to make sure uh, effective and helpful. Then layering the stuff on top is, very, is, is really tough. So structural solutions are also important for just kind of allowing, uh, I guess, the right shapes to manifest in the, the systems in which we're working. Um, yeah, I've probably said enough about that. Absolutely. I think that's really, really important to make sure that we're not just kind of as individuals um, putting too much burden on, on us, but actually together um, trying to address like these structural aspects um, directly is, I think, in the end going to be the most effective way. Uh, and honestly, I think... Um, kind of the the lowest level policies that should be relatively easy to change are exactly those the language aspects the preprints and um the number of citations as um as barriers because in a way none of these policies actually are necessary for the journal and they don't make a lot of sense given that everything is online now anyway and maybe you know why why do we only need 50 citations you you will read a pdf anyway so it can be as long as you want and i'm uh, i wonder whether you know the, with the advent of better language models for example the language barrier might be um overcome as well for instance one way of doing that might be to kind of talk to journals and be like well if we use a certain kind of um, translation approach you might be able to publish the original language article along with a well-translated um, English version so that that might be one way of approaching journals and be like those are quite low-level things that you can change they shouldn't take that much effort on your end and in the end their bottom line is always revenue I don't see how implementing those things would harm their revenue. Mm. At the same time, I know my first thought is, yes, it might be a bit more accessible to put it in English, but also it kind of reinforces English as the default. And is that knowledge meant to be accessible to those people? Maybe it's not meant to be shared. And maybe that also supports extraction. I don't know. That's just like my first sort of, if I'm going to, be the the devil's advocate type thing. 
No, but I, I, I totally agree with you that there, there are certain things. English is not the, the, the world's language. It, it is what we use in academia, and it's important to talk about uh, how that is a system of oppression for many scholars that are not coming from Anglo-Saxon countries. So uh, I, I knew from a very early age that um, in Brazil that if I didn't speak English, um, I wouldn't be able to climb the social ladder. So, you know, um, because of the many privileges that I hold, I was given um, many opportunities to learn the language. But people who have not these privileges um, cannot, and by default, they are marginalized from uh, arriving uh, uh, at a point where they can engage with the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, at, at the same time, I feel like potentially those communities exist. They have their own communities that are separate. But is that enough, right? Like, there, there's... You have to uh, sort of balance like, the local and, and the global. And to exclude them systematically is, is not okay just because of, of these things. But I don't know. I've, I've been reading a lot also about you know, community-based research and making things more local because that tends to be less extractive and more beneficial to the community. So maybe local communities, local research ecosystems also can serve themselves better than anyone else could. Exactly. Uh, but because of the system of incentives, the locals may mm. sometimes that the knowledge that they produce and um, it is not embedded what we consider to be mainstream science, scientific community, right? So it's that connection that for me and, and the opportunities that comes with these connections, right? The funding, the, the awards, the recognition and all of that things that, that, that we look for um, and, and, and these people become marginalized because of the lack of English, despite the excellent scholarship that they produce locally, right? Every, every change is made locally, right? So, so there's a lack of recognition on that. With that said, I just wanted to say that um, my thoughts on citation politics or citation practices are um, inspired by Miria Holman, a political scientist uh, who has a, a, an amazing blog uh, um, that has, uh, it's called M-H-A-W-S. Uh, it's a newsletter. Um, and uh, there she has a blog that says uh, citations as power, how to cite, how to bring the systems down. And she mm-hmm. mentions one thing that I wanted to speak, which I think connects Paul and Elena and also Sarah's, w- w- what you're saying, which is... Um, Citation practices as act of radical act, erect, I'm sorry. Citation practices are radical acts of defiance. And yeah. then she has like a list of, um, of things that you can do. And I, what made me remember of this is a poll saying, Oh, uh, you know, not cite decks. And here she literally elicits like, Oh, have I not cited known assholes, known harassers? Right. So this is, this is super important. Uh, have I cited myself? Are the first 10 sites people that I like and that I want to read my article? Um, so, you know, there's all, all these strategies that a lot of intelligent people have come up with that, you know, there are some guidelines like the 10 simple rules of this. Right. And we can all learn from it. Yeah, it, for me, I don't have many hard and fast rules, but a couple of things that I do, sometimes I purposely don't cite some people. 
and also people that either I think they have too much power in the field and I don't think they need any more and there's other work that's relevant or harassers I, I'm, I'm not gonna cite them if I can if I know who they are I can avoid it and otherwise in in some cases a paper that's coming out well soon should be April um there's some work that we're critiquing and I was like well that's in- I, I don't want to cite them because that reinforces their power but what I'm trying to do is in this paper we're trying to critique what they're doing and saying that actually what they're doing is extractive. So we just, we didn't cite them. We, we named their work. We said, you know, this lab's work, that lab's work, but we didn't actually put in a citation. And to my, I guess, possibly surprise, but also I'm glad this is the way it worked. We didn't get any problem for it from the journal. No one like raised it as an issue or any of the reviewers. It was just a, yeah, okay, fine. I don't know if there was like an understanding that was deliberate but no one raised it as a problem. But in, in general, I, I, I try for maybe 51% women or other marginalized people as first authors. Uh, I, I think I've managed in some of my papers, but it's actually harder than I thought. I wrote a paper on um, like being an anti-capitalist scientist. And it was hard to get to 51% women. And how? Because a lot of what I'm reading is feminist, indigenous, queer, and, and still it was hard to reach that target. Do we know what sort of the base rate is to an extent? Because if we're saying in that field, there's like 30% women, um, you know, maybe um, the rest is male. And then, you know, the percentage of queer authors is also, I don't know, I have no idea in your field. So um If we knew something like that, then obviously that would explain why it would be so difficult to find sufficient numbers of citations to make it completely equal. And then I suppose the question that some people might have is, to what extent does that mean that some people who have you know done good work and themselves follow good policies might not be cited because of certain demographic aspects as well so that might be a caveat of kind of trying to be more equitable but then also um on the other hand there might be some especially early career researchers um who for example work in labs of older white men let's say with a lot of power and some of them you know some of the grad students there might be female themselves and and might uh-huh. even even if the pi might be abusive or generally known as not the most pleasant person if then you go and don't cite these individuals who might be first authors who do great work and who are you know very kind and um uh sort of conscientious people when it comes to equity diversity and inclusion in a way, we're also kind of punishing them then. I feel like that's yeah. such such a difficult choice to make there. And, and always this caveat that I have in my mind when I think about how to approach citations and whom to give power to. Yeah, there's been analysis also of like last author citations because in, in psychology, it tends to be the last author who is the PI. And so it's first and last. The middle hasn't been really analyzed yet. I think Helena makes... A- Point that I guess working in a slightly different space where it's heavily empirical, I think um, this kind of law of unintended consequence of a hard fast rule. Uh, I think there's a few aspects of it I think we need to pay attention. First of all, you can have a hard fast rule that has some benefits, but in a complex situation or complex environment, a hard fast rule is also going to have negative effects. Yeah. So then you need to balance the two. 
and then do we, if we don't have the evidence to to decide whether or not the downsides are worth the upsides, then we're in a tricky situation for evaluating the effectiveness of these rules that we try to adhere to. So it might, in those circumstances, be better to adhere to certain principles. Um, and then when we're thinking about principles, obviously principles compete for space in some way. So you can try to be very diligent about equitable citation practice and kind of surfacing research that uh, may not otherwise be visible to reader. But at the same time, like in my field, um, we're probably still a little old-fashioned, but we cite stuff because it's relevant, because of its topic and its findings, right? And then because of the way that uh, research is produced, there's an unequal distribution of the relevant, useful stuff to the people who do the most research, who tend to be of a particular demographic group, right? So it's, it's in a way, then given the time it takes to surface some of the stuff that's maybe in that long tail, um, because the distribution is skewed, surfacing that stuff, it may just take too long to do, to be feasible. Which is, again, why I kind of lean back to more towards structural solutions. Because if, if, if the system is skewed, then the only way to realistically make that, to have a, a policy that's going to actually change, is not to ask a million people to implement different citation practices. That's not going to not help, but in terms of really helping, it, I feel concentrating on the powerful people who make decisions, so like the editors who ha- are able to shape the structure of research, concentrate much more on that, because if I spent like, you know, eight hours a month doing that instead of eight hours a month concentrating on the long tail, I probably have more effect, and I've only got finite time, so then I have to make these kind of ruthless decisions. So it's not to say that individual practice is not important, it's just that given the laws of unintended consequence and principles competing for space and resources being finite, that concentrating hard on structural work seems to me to be a good heuristic. Right. I think that comes back to what's our theory of change. We talked about that a little bit in our opening episode this season. We have different ideas. I think some of us at the podcast tend to subscribe more to a bottom-up approach rather than top-down, but I also think both are important, that we have to do it in many different ways to actually achieve change in the end. Um, but for me, like I have just more trouble trusting the people with more power to actually do what's in the best interest of others. Because historically, it seems like that's not generally what happens. I'm not, I'm not advocating a top-down approach because the structures should elevate the people who are making the right decisions and empower people who have like the right policies, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and that is partly so that that is a bottom-up approach to changing those people in influential positions, right? So, if we work with early career researchers, people who don't have as much skin in the game of conventional practice, who are part of that long tail, then instead of concentrating on finding them and elevating them through citation practices, if we concentrate on finding them and elevating them through editorial board memberships, through uh, working with journals that. Uh, you know, a, a constructive, if we want, member of the research ecosystem rather than the ones that have policies that are destructive in terms of the research ecosystem, then we can bring about that change by by changing who the decision makers are through these bottom-up approaches. So I, I would definitely not view it as either or. It's, it's extremely complicated. So you're advocating sort of for a more collective approach to a bottom-up, um, yeah, a bottom-up manner of... Um, 
bringing about like positive change when it comes to citational practice. And I mean, that that I think uh, is probably going to be just a really good way of um, moving into a segue of hearing maybe a bit more about uh, the kind of specifics on these kinds of approaches. Um, given that you're working with um, on the fort, for example, uh, yeah, that might be a great way of looking into how that could be uh, achieved. If you have any like more specific direct examples, that would be great. So speaking of community, um, I just wanted to share with you work that is maintained by Jane L. Sumner, who is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Um, and you can paste, copy paste your uh, bibliography um, and syllabus uh, there, and it will give you the percentage of women, men, and unknown, right? Because not everything is, is, is possible to identify with a shiny app. Unknown is a big term there, but at least it gives you a sense of... Um, more or less the proportion of women and men. And I, of course, this is extremely important. It is extremely good tool. So I'll share the link with you as well. Um, but I also hope that there's, um, uh, you know, that as we evolve in a world of GTT, GTP chat and, you know, large scale, uh, language programs that we are able to also pick up on other kinds of privileges, not only based on gender. And so that we can, you know, uh, grassroots or bottom up or even top down, these tools help everyone to just to do more justice, right? To, to their citation practices. Yeah, that's true. There's mm -hmm. certainly a way of um, developing these sorts of tools to even give both. I, I think these can benefit both on a structural level, but also on an individual level. Uh, on an individual level, you can always just say, I'm going to use that tool that you just described or a tool to check for the research impact of self-citations and, and bad politics when it comes to that or tools of looking at how diverse in terms of international citations Uh, the, the citation practices of an institution or an individual are. Um, we can link a lot of those tools later on in the description to the podcast. So anybody who's listening can try those out themselves and kind of see would that help you to change maybe your citational politics. But then when it comes to structural approaches, do we think that tools like this could also be promoted more by journals or research institutions? Would that would we think that's a positive thing to do? What kind of caveats might there be? The first caveat that comes to mind for me is that gender isn't legible just from someone's name. We would have to somehow ensure that, you know, that comes from the person self-identifying their gender. And some people do that on social media, some people do that on their websites, but not everyone does. And so that, that to me is, is, a, is tricky because it also reinforces the gender binary and the fact that gender, it, you know, it, it, that system assumes or suggests that gender is legible when it isn't actually. So it's handy, but it's not, it's not perfect. Yes. So I think that this, um, it's called a uh, gender balance assessment tool, GB80. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's a clear, um, 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 it's not flaw. What is the English term? Um, um, oh boy. Caveat. What am I looking for? 
So are you yeah. are you saying it's not flawless or they do uh they do kind of list caveats? Yeah, they yeah, uh, okay. there's a, a limitation. It's a limitation ah. of the tool uh that it, it, what I like about the tool is that they are very they are knowledge it and um I I'm also and this might be a sideline and you feel free to cut it off but I just want to say that in uh, Fort is now trying to build a tool uh that is trying to uh uh sort of uh, append the only way that we talk about authorship order uh which is you know merit based and it's 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 based we're calling it an academic wheel of privilege and mm. Um, and it it has so many caveats and so many limitations <laughs> that we are often meeting and saying, is this more helpful or more harmful, right? Because in creating systems of change, right? So a tool just like this one that somebody put a lot of thought, it's so much work that goes into a shiny app like this mm -hmm. one, right? So... It is free work. Nobody's paying you. It's a thankless job. And uh, if there's something that academics and uh, even social media will do is pile on your very well-intentioned uh, uh, initiative. And, and so, so just to say that, you know, these tools for its limitations, they, whether they are bottom up or, or, or top down, uh, they help us in some way. But maybe collectively, maybe with this two here, plus what we are calling the um, uh, academic wheel of privilege. And there's other tools that are coming in, like and, and communities, Marginalia, uh, Breer, uh, Nowhere Lab, um, for reproducibility T and so forth, right? Maybe together as a collective, we are affecting change. But it is true that individually, even these tools are... I guess, I guess a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess all of those things is very difficult to take into account the complexity of identities um, and especially intersectionality. Um, there's obviously always going to be a limitation there. But um, so then one one important aspect would be um, obviously thinking about how journals approach this as well. And um, given that there are more and more sort of open science approaches, thinking differently about how we do the whole scientific publishing um, uh, yeah, procedure. I think that would be quite interesting as well to hear there of ideas of um, how we might be able to um, yeah, approach that. And I suppose Paul especially would be well suited to, to maybe make a comment on that, um, given his position as editor-in-chief uh, of a new open science environmental health journal. Yeah, so I think it, it's tricky, right? So we're talking about trying to surface research that's in the long tail of like the, almost the long, almost invisible tail, right? Because one of the reasons that um, this stuff this stuff is just hard to find, right? We, we we rely on databases and search engines and more databases, more search engines to to find the research that we're interested in. Plus, um, the kind of like passive. Uh, aggregation methods we have through our own research communities and personal networks, so the, the stuff we see on Twitter, the things that people send us by email, right? That nothing is actually getting a representative sample or, or access to stuff that we that is not readily accessed is just fundamentally challenging. So 
one of the things we can't do with uh, research databases like Scopus or um, platforms like PubMed is search for people who are from marginalised groups, right, specifically. So we, we can't say to PubMed, can you show me the stuff that uh, is not, not on a topic, but maybe within a topic from a certain demographic group? Uh, that data, in order to surface it, there's that the search capacity has to be built in. So you have to say to something like Scopus, can you weight the results uh, according to these sets of researcher characteristics that I'm interested in? So you show me stuff that I wouldn't otherwise see, right? But then from a journal perspective, when we're publishing these papers and collecting the metadata that goes into the database then can be queried, um, to make this work, we would have to start collecting data about people's ethnicity, gender, sexual preferences, other things, right? Um, which I think, from an ethical perspective, makes me feel like this should at least be checked, right? Um, so whilst in principle it should be possible to, you know, if I was thinking about this, like the, the individual systems like the ones Flavio is talking about are super interesting, but they're very small databases without much reach. So I, I, from a purely thinking about it as a tool, without the reach to make it a general purpose search instrument, then it's probably going to struggle to get enough uptake and enough breadth to be useful to enough people that it gets kind of enough market penetration to make a change, right? Whereas if you look at something like PubMed, or you look at Scopus, which has uh, both of have you know millions and millions of users and are incredibly comprehensive databases. They're probably where to go and say, look, as part of the um, design of these systems, there should be ways of uh, uh, surfacing uh, research that tends to be less visible. So it's not just the famous white people's research; it's other research that's more accessible, right? But. Mm -hmm. The, the marriage of the metadata needed to, to make that research more findable to computers uh, with the ethics of collecting that metadata, uh, those feel to me like two issues that need some, some investigation. I, th I think there might be ways of doing it without having to directly collect data on people. These would be, you know, but these would require AI tools. They will have, inevitably have biases in them. It's whether or not the biases in those systems end up being better than the systems we currently have, right? Is that helpful at all? I feel like I'm just going to put this structure. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think potentially some of that information might come in positionality statements. Um, they're not that widespread yet or in author notes. I've seen some author notes that are that will say, like, I am a white woman working in the, in the global north. And that's, you know, so that just sort of gives some position of, of power. But the flip side to that is that it can be dangerous to mark yourself if you are not in a position of power. So some people will deliberately not identify themselves so that they don't get discriminated against because those systems still exist. So that This is why the is so complicated, right? So one of the things, there may be an analogy here to signed peer review, right, as a, as a simple thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, we're introducing fully open peer review at our journal and we're giving people the option to sign their peer reviews. And then there are two ways of looking at this. Like some people say, I don't want to sign my review because as an early career researcher, I don't want to expose myself to the risk of blowback, right? But there's a positive way of looking at it, which is if you sign your peer review, uh, your contribution to the peer review process can be recognized. You can put yourself in the shop window and you have the opportunity to impress someone as much as you have the opportunity to annoy someone. So it might be that if... I mean, so... 
it's challenging from an editorial perspective to require authors to make declarations about their origin and things, I think. Um, I, I think I still think there's an ethical issue, particularly when you're talking about the marginalised groups we're trying to surface may not want yeah. to declare all this stuff for that Yeah, for good reason. reasons, right? Um, yeah. Then, uh, so it probably wouldn't become a widespread enough practice for that metadata to that, that we're generating to then be necessarily useful without maybe the addition of other and like you know looking for patterns in that metadata that suggest that someone from this group is of this orientation but then that becomes dangerous as well because then you're sticking labels on people without a permission so i guess yeah. it just feels yeah, like would to be tremendously difficult to like it's we what we want a, a simple solution to this problem of the surfacing stuff in the long tail but i, I have a feeling that it's almost like it's a consequence of um the societal structures that we currently have rather than necessarily a cause of them so if it's only a consequence strategizing around addressing consequence is not as effective as strategizing around addressing cause right so maybe it's it's you know sure so yeah i think that comes back to yeah theory of change i think it comes back to again and yes we have to change our structural systems of oppression before we i don't know is it before? No, I don't think I have to do it before. I think you can do both simultaneously. I don't see it as an either or. It's not, it's not an yeah. either or because you can't change systems without change without doing things differently yourself, right? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. But at the same time, self uh, change doesn't change the system, and they're not they're not the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. No, for sure. Just being conscious of time. I wonder if we want to wrap things up. Is there anyone anything else that? you all want to to bring up any burning comments before i think it's a really interesting mm-hmm. space and question and thing to think about actually it's not something i'd really considered and you know it's another reminder that i just swim around in this gigantic ocean of ignorance and that when you look at these yeah. things there it's another thing that is challenging and complicated that surfaces a whole bunch of inequity issues that are incredibly difficult to address so mm-hmm. does your cat have a contribution uh he's just gone so he's gone oh do something horrible to the local wildlife i shouldn't even admit to yeah all right well thanks for this really really great discussion i think for me i guess to wrap up i want to say that what i hope people take away from this is at the very least just awareness that citation has impact and to to have a think about your citation practice um and you don't have to make any changes yet, but be be aware. It's something that I never thought about until it was flagged to me, brought up to me. So it's something that I wanted to do in turn for our audience, for our wonderful listeners. Yes, I think that's an incredibly important point. Just awareness is a first step always um, to addressing these sorts of problems. And one thing that I can certainly encourage listeners to do as well is to maybe take some of those uh, tools that we're uh, posting, even though we know uh, that they have limitations and there are caveats, but it can also be quite eye-opening just to look at your own kind of practices. You know, if you have an article that you recently published and Mm -hmm. you check, what does it look like? Where do my citations kind of link to? Is there a bias? Kind of just thinking about your own uh, current state. I find that quite enlightening, actually. Um, And there's all sorts of uh, ways in which we can do that. Uh, As I said, we'll link that there. Um, Yeah. But then structural aspects, 
yeah, that, that's where the real tricky part comes in, I think. All right, shall we move on to our next segment? Sure, this is where we yell about stuff. Yeah, Elena, do you want to lead us in? Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Well, we got so excited talking about politics that we kind of knocked over the teapot now. So the tea has certainly been spilled and I hope you've um, taken away a lot from that. But since we have our lovely guests today, we've invited them to launch our rant of the week. So whether it's a complaint or a celebration, uh, Flavio and Paul, what do you want to rant about? Well, so it's kind of like a complaint and a celebration. So I think uh, the thing that drove me slightly wild last week was the sort of secret letter to the editors of Nature about how awful uh, Michael Eisen is at eLife. Because it's, I mean, it's literally one journal trying to do things differently, which is literally its job and always has been. And some people just seem to be losing their minds over what is essentially a very small experiment, right? There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of journals right if you don't like eLife publish over there why try to derail a well-reasoned legitimate experiment in doing publishing differently right can you tell us a little bit about what that change was for those oh yeah so they're trying to implement a publish review curate model of scientific publishing so instead of submitting a manuscript to a journal and it being accepted or rejected what you do is you post your preprint online and then you tell eLife that your preprint is online, and they uh, make a decision about whether or not to review it. And eLife, uh, and then uh, if they peer review it, and they agree with the authors that enough work has been done, basically, that it's a scientific publication, it goes into the journal proper, right? Um, it's quite a complicated process, in fact, so I don't, think, I don't want to get too sidetracked by that. Right. That sounds reasonable, though. What's the problem? <laughs> Sorry? That sounds reasonable. What's the well, problem? this is one of the weird things, right? So some people have a massive problem with this, and I think it's because they don't really understand what they're doing, and they're fundamentally extremely conservative and reactionary about it, right? Right. What eLife views the role of the journal to be is to provide peer review and contextualise the uh, research that someone has done with the opinions of, like, three or four peer reviewers and an editor, right? Uh so what that means is that the, the idea of publishing and gatekeeping, so the idea of publications of having the stamp of approval of a journal and has somehow been validated by the peer reviewers, uh, this is just the model that is fundamentally rejected now by eLife. And uh, it, it, it changes kind of what scientific publishing is. So my journal's doing the same thing, basically. Um, Slightly different route. We don't have the same tech uh, that eLife has to allow this to happen. Uh, and we do, like, we, we take a slightly different approach to editorial triage and things. We're getting no resistance at all from our community. And I suspect what's happened is that because we're a new journal and we have license to do things differently, we don't have to go through some horrible, complicated change management process that eLife does by introducing a new policy. And we don't have big wigs running around the place uh, who are making trouble for just the worst reasons, I think. So I think uh, they should fail and embarrass themselves horribly. And then gravity should stop where they're standing and they can spin off into space where the stupid opinions <laughs> and lack of imagined bravery won't bother us ever. Oh, wow. 
That's lovely rent for sure. Um, and and yeah, I, I just to add to that, I think one of the reasons why people, I mean, certainly because it's such a new journal, maybe that's why people haven't um, approached your journal about that yet. Uh, but I, I just find, actually, I think that the story of eLife is incredibly kind of um, uplifting because it's just remarkable how well cited the journal has become and the reputation it is now garnered over a relatively short period of time being on par with some very well established journals. And I think that just shows that people are very open to this different mode of publishing. And that should really get those bigger publishers worried. Um, and hopefully uh, it will do so more and more. And um, to, to go uh, back to... Uh, our theme of puns, I hope they will continue to stir the pot and the teapot um, and this will continue going forward. Flavio, you have a, something to share as well, hey? Um, I do um, a little bit. Um, so um, for, Rent away. for a, a few different reasons, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how big team science is unintendedly perpetuating colonialist practices. Ah, yes. Um, this is relevant to my field. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the number of big team science projects have been increasing a lot in the past years, and that also cross-cuts several disciplines, uh, for sure, psychology, moral psychology, social psychology, but also political science, sociology, behavioral science, communication sciences. So, you know, this movement... Big Team Science has, you know, inspired um, the growth of organizations uh, in developing structure, workflows, and knowledge that are necessary to complete this distributed, collaborative, big team sciences, right? So think of many labs, uh, one, two, three, many babies, many primates, many dogs, many, many. There's, but also uh, Psychological Sciences Accelerator, FORT, um, and other projects right so um and but 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 perhaps most importantly what is big team science right so l l let me just just similar to poll introducing what the problem is um so big team science is when scientists from widely dispersed institutions pull together resources expertise uh, uh people power to complete projects that would be hard, if not impossible, to complete individually. So the idea is very simple, right? And um, big team science, I like to think, is part of open science, open scholarship movement in, in that we're trying to improve the science, the rigor, um, the generalizability that, um, uh, of our, our science. So, um, however, when we go about this, we go about this in a very Anglo-Saxon, global north way. We are researching questions that are interesting to people in the global north and sort of extracting manual labor from uh, this privileged or underprivileged uh, folks via participants' work um, 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 but also researchers' work who are not being uh, given uh, neither the recognition for their labor, because they are often, when it comes to authorship, they are put in the middle of the citation uh, list, right? So they are not recognized. We're not recognizing the fact that it is completely different 
to send an email to Lucid or Scent or uh, uh, what is the psychology one, uh, Prolific or whatever, and like collect the data immediately versus collecting data in countries where polling industry isn't as developed, right? Um, so, for example, in one project that I participated in, uh, folks had to, uh, you know, have community uh, managers, that's a, a term of fort, had community people, like people who hold social power in their uh, societies to say, listen, you want to fulfill, you want to, you want to do this survey. And another one went with a laptop to several different places, knocking on people's houses so that they co- could complete the survey. Um, and, um, this is, you know, it's completely different, right? And that is not recognized at all. So what we have is essentially, uh, folks who, are already prestigious, who go on social media, say, oh, I had this idea. And then, uh, which is fine. And I, I, it, it is good in of itself. Like, so before in the episode, we did talk about like how even well-intentioned initiatives, including mine and Ford's well-intentioned initiatives, have lots of limitations. So this is one of the limitations of being team science. And just to link back to what uh, Sarah said, it is about being conscious about these biases. It is about being um, uh, aware and perhaps affecting change in the big team science project, in, in the in big t- team science projects to sort of avoid some of these uh, negative consequences, right? So... Uh, another practice of big team science is that even in one of the big team science projects that I'm, I'm, I'm involved, the leads asked us to, to hire a company that is located or has its, uh, headquarters in the US or Germany or does it matter? So in the global north, right? So even when we are paying participants from the global south and low middle income countries, we're not actually paying them. Right. We're paying a German company. So we're not distributing wealth either. So, you know, as of now, with anything that is new, right, we are literally doing the worst we can for justice. And I think we should think that big team science is an opportunity perhaps the best opportunity to realize the most difficult goals of science, of open scholarships, um, goals which have been the hardest to make progress on, so on diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, social justice. But while this is possibly the best opportunity, it has been executed and operationalized in the worst, in of its worst form. So I'm ranting about this for us in big team science to do a much better job, spend less energy on policing, you know, people's contributions, policing, policing people's contributions, and focus more on how big team science can be a, a force for uh, progressive change. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I mean, that, that's great. This is super relevant, I think, to some of the big projects in music science that are starting to develop. In response to, oh, we're super Eurocentric, let's diversify, which, okay, cool. But the way that these projects are working is that people in the North are extracting from the global South. I'm like, okay, that's not the solution. That's not any better than, than anything else. Um, and you're enacting different forms of oppression and violence and extraction. Ugh. So I don't know. Another thought is, I think that the difficulty maybe with the bigger the project becomes, 
the more distant the relationships with accountability become. And I think having really clear relationships of accountability is what helps enact justice because it's easier to call out any problems. It's easier when you have those relationships closer to people to be accountable to them. And the bigger we go in structure, the more distant those relationships become. And so the easier it is to be unaccountable. For sure. And I just to, to pick back to what uh, Paul was saying about structures. Um, um, so the problem is that these these big team science projects are embedded into science systems that are already, um, you know, um, not great in diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, right? Um, and then when we do it, we do it in a way that perpetuates the systems. Um, but if we can, you know, zoom out a little bit, perhaps there are other ways or there are small changes that we can make that allows for this harm to be decreased or even do some good. So one example, and just to, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm always mentioning Fort, right? Because it's a great community. Mm -hmm. So they are thinking of this uh, wheel of privilege, of academic privilege, exactly for what, for this reason. Because if we decide the authorship order, not based on who came up with the idea or organized the project, but based on the privilege that they hold, right? If they have, you know, a backing from a, 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 what is called a, a prestigious uh, institution, if they have a stable home, if their identities are not discriminated against, um, if they, you know, do not have uh, uh, home care systems, um, it's a home care, um, caring systems, like caring for somebody, um, mm -hmm. etc. There's a host of, of, of privileges. To, then people in the global south and low middle income countries might have a chance to be at positions of prestige, right? So, in, I think that, you know, it's flawed. It's very flawed uh, idea. It has many limitations, but perhaps just providing an alternative uh, to how we order people in that, you know, list of names and contributions um, could not only spur other creative alternatives, right? Like people will look at the academic wheel of privilege and say, oh, that sucks. Let me do better, right? So it, it, it's a chain of events that leads us to, you know, improving in, in general. But I'm a fan. It's just, you know, I want to be aware of uh, limitations. After all that action, it's time to wind down, clean up that tea, and dive into some delectable desserts. So what's our hidden curriculum suite of the week? Elena, do you want to read that one? Staying close to topic, today we want to make sure you know about citation managers. And very quickly, um, for example, Zotero or Mendeley, what citation managers do you all use? Um, obviously, citation manager means that where do you collect your your citations, where do you keep them to then make sure that you have kind of a smooth way of incorporating them into your papers? Mm -hmm. I use Zotero. It's my favorite so far. I've discovered it a couple of years ago, and I have stuck to it. It's one that worked the best for me. So I think Citavi is the best citation manager I've come across because it's conceptualized as a research support tool uh, and document development tool rather than just something that allows you to move uh, bibliographic information around the place. It used to be reasonably priced. It's now horrendously expensive, so I've stopped using it. And 
in one of his generations, it, it didn't have enough collaborative features to allow you to use it across multiple researchers. So it didn't really work once I started having like 15, 20 co-authors routinely. Um, so now I use something called Paperpile because it uh, integrates into Google Docs. Um, it is paid for, but the storage is free because it uses a neat Google Drive integration for uh, storing the PDFs that you have got. And one of the really cool things it does is it creates uh, a microsite of citations to share with somebody at the click of a button. So if you've got 10 papers in Paperpile to share, click them all, hit uh, share, and it creates a web page with the bibliographic data and links to the papers automatically, which is just brilliant. So well worth five pounds a month. I use uh, Zotero, and um, I do know Paperpio and Citavi. I used to love Citavi, and also used to love Quicka, which is a, 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 a earlier version if you if you know Quicka. But um, um, I don't anymore because it's paid, and I need to get acquainted and also practice uh, the use of software that is free, so that other people um, can enjoy them as well, um, um, even with you know the cost that comes with free tools. Uh, uh, you know, it's our support. It's the user base that uh, eventually dictates whether free software gets uh, updates and etc. So that's why I use Zotero, which is a great tool, by the way. There's so many um, extensions and etc. Mm -hmm. A great community too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's actually the reason why I started moving away from Mendeley because that was the first one that I uh, ever used when I was a grad student. And then obviously I do want to pivot towards open software. And so Zotero is also my method of choice. All right, everyone, that brings this episode to an end. Thank you so much for joining us for reproducibility. As usual, you can get in touch with us with any feedback, ideas and suggestions. And a huge thank you to our guests, Flavio Acevedo and Paul Whaley. Flavio and Paul, where can our listeners find you if they want to know more about you? So you can follow me on Twitter at Paul underscore MSG. Simple as way to do it. You can follow me also on Twitter and Mastodon and LinkedIn. So I'll give the handle for the Twitter is Flavio underscore Azevedo underscore. Uh, there's an extra underscore. So, yeah, so it's Flavio underscore Azevedo underscore. Uh, it's just because it was taken. So that. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. And you can find me on Twitter at H Gellerson. And on Mastodon at Helena Gellerson at fediscience.org. And I'm also on LinkedIn. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sove or on TikTok at Sarah underscore Reads. Right. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you to our listeners. Have a great day, everyone. And enjoy that tea. Bye. 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 Bye.